Hi, hello, what is up? And welcome back to this week's segment of Girl You Haven't Heard, a podcast where we discuss true crime and Black history from a decolonial critical lens, and most importantly, above all else, without all of the unnecessary propaganda. This week's segment is part two of the Highway of Tears. If you have not listened to that last segment, you can go ahead and do that now where in this episode we will be discussing the cases of those who have gone missing or murdered along the highway who did not fit the criteria according to police to be in the EPANA investigation, or their cases are just not acknowledged by the police. Now I want to note that there are a lot more cases than the ones that are being discussed here. This week we'll be discussing the case of Helen Frost, Jean Virginia Sampar, Cecilia Nickel, Dina Bram, Bonnie Marie Joseph, Madison Scott, Immaculate Basil, Anita Thorne, and the Jack family, which consists of Doreen, Ronald, Russell, and Ryan. After analyzing these cases and breaking down the information that is public about all of the cases, we will get into the RCMP problems, which are extensive. There are a lot of them. We will talk about the Highway of Tears Symposium Recommendations Report, and we will wrap it up with my thoughts. Now, one thing I do just want to mention before we get into the case is that for the rest of this month, we'll be focused on true crime so that in February during Black History Month, we can focus exclusively on Black history, all things Black. Miss Helen Claire Frost was born on October 17th, 1952 in England and was the youngest daughter of two. And as she got older, she would sometimes go by aliases Lana Lunn or Debbie Souls. Why is kind of unclear, but just something that she did. And Miss Helen was described as shy and quiet, but extremely sweet. Now, when she was four years old, her family made the move to Nynamo, B.C. I think I'm saying that right. If I'm not, I'm sorry. At 17 years old, Helen would actually make the move to Prince George in November of 1969. And her sister, Sandy, would later join her that same month. Their apartment was shared amongst the two of them, as well as a friend named Darlene and Darlene's newborn baby. Helen, also at the same time, had a boyfriend whose name is Stefan Grumper, whom she was madly in love with and extremely committed to. Shortly after her move to Prince George, Helen realized that she was pregnant, and on May 13th, she would give birth to daughter Sandra Jeanette in Kamloops, B.C., When she returned back to Prince George, Stefan gave her an ultimatum and he told her that in order for them to get married as she wanted, she had to give up their daughter for adoption. And a welfare worker who was at the hospital had also been trying to convince her to place the baby up for adoption. Helen was obviously torn, but with all of the pressure, she decided to adopt Sandra out to another family. However, that same summer, Sandy said that the two of them went to social services, their office, and they went there because Helen had realized that she actually did want her daughter, despite all of the outside voices that had pushed her into doing otherwise. Her attempt to get Sandra back was unfortunately unsuccessful, and Sandy said that Helen left the office that day intensely crying and extremely upset. Now, later on that summer, her relationship with Stefan would unfortunately also come to an end. It seemed as if that he did not really want to be with her and he had no desire to be a parent or have any sort of responsibility in that way. So he just kind of manipulated her into giving their daughter up for adoption only to break up with her shortly after she did so. 
Now, it's important to note that Helen was not battling any forms of addiction and she was not an active participant in sex work, but as many young girls did around this time, she and her sister would hitchhike in order to get from place to place as public forms of transportation were and still are lacking in the area that they lived in. And that responsibility ultimately falls back on local and provincial British Columbia governments, not on the girls or the women or anybody for getting around the only way that they could. Now, fast forward to October 13th of 1970, just a few days before Helen's 18th birthday. At around 8 p.m., she left her apartment, which was in the 1600 block of Queensway Avenue, and she just wanted to go out for an evening walk. Their apartment was only about nine blocks away from the infamous Highway 16, and the street that they lived on actually directly intersected with Highway 97, both of which have extensive ties to all of the Highway of Tears cases. She invited her sister Sandy to actually go with her, but Sandy decided not to as she had just gotten home. She was pretty tired and it was kind of cold outside, like it was very windy. So she just was like, no, I'm not really going to go, but like you go, you have fun. So Helen told her sister that she would be back shortly, you know, after she left at around 8 p.m. But this would unfortunately be the last time that Helen would be seen. Her sister initially did not think anything of Helen not coming back right away because they had many friends in the area and it wasn't that out of the ordinary for Helen to visit them. However, on October 15th, Sandy realized that her sister was missing and she hadn't seen her or heard from her and neither had any of their friends in the area. As with many cases, the local police did not take her disappearance seriously and they did not do much, if anything at all, to find or locate her. Sandy honestly told the police that the girls would hitchhike on occasion, and so the cops just assumed that she had left to begin a new life and didn't tell anyone. She had an exceptionally hard year, and they used that as a reason to not investigate, because to them, that was clearly the reason she decided to leave. Sandy was quite young herself at the time, and she didn't know what to do to make the police take her seriously, take the situation seriously, so they were essentially able to just brush it off. Ever since her disappearance, Sandy has been trying to get Helen included in the EPANA investigation, and it definitely makes sense, but her attempts have been unsuccessful despite her sister's disappearance meeting two out of the three criteria set by the RCMP. The family also believes that it's extremely possible that Helen did hitchhike somewhere using Highway 16 or Highway 97, but those theories have been dismissed by authorities essentially causing Helen's case to be cold the minute it was reported. Her family actually has a Facebook page dedicated to her, and the link to that will be left in the description. And if you have any information about Helen's disappearance, be sure to contact them through that page, join that group, and support the family in any way that they may need. At this time, Helen Claire Frost's case is unsolved. She is still missing, and there have been no remains recovered. Jean Virginia Sampar, um, Jean, who was lovingly nicknamed Ginny by her family, was the second last child born to a family of six, and she was born on September 10th of 1953 in BC, and her parents were described by older brother Rod as strict and watchful. Their parents kept very close eyes on them. All of the children, all six of them, had to work very hard, and they were often not allowed out of the house past 9 p.m. 
Now Jean went to high school in Hazleton, BC, and for the most part she was quite quiet, but she absolutely loved to tease her siblings, especially her sisters, in a sing-song type of way, and she was said to be very strong. She had a very bright and promising future, and she was overall quite cautious and careful when it came to her surroundings and her well-beings as it was implemented in her by her parents from the time she was quite young. She was not actively battling any form of addiction and she was not active in sex work and she was not known to hitchhike. Now as she got older she worked at the Royal Packing Company which is a salmon canning plant in Claxton and when not working or in school she would take care of her siblings. Jean, her siblings, and her cousins were all very close, and anytime she went anywhere, she would tell at someone beforehand, one of her family members, one of her cousins, or her parents. Now, on October 14th, 1971, at around 10pm, 18-year-old Jean had gotten into some sort of disagreement with her mother, which left her in tears in the kitchen. And Rod's wife, Violet, said that when she came in, she asked what was going on, and Jean just abruptly left the house. Violet called after her and asked where she was going, but she wouldn't even make an attempt to bring her back into the house because Jean's mom told her not to bother as she would come back. This emotional argument may have had something to do with her boyfriend who had recently gone missing not too long before this fight, um, and his body would actually later be found after he had drowned in a nearby river named the Skeena River. Now shortly after she stormed out of her home, Jean would meet up with cousin Alvin near an old bridge off of Highway 16 right outside of their hometown. It was kind of late and kind of cold, so after they had walked there, Alvin told her that he would go back home, which wasn't far away, to get a jacket and he would be right back. As he was coming back, he was decided to ride his bike back so he could get back to her faster. As he was riding back to where Jean was, he heard a car door shut and by the time he got close, he couldn't see or find her anywhere. This happened only about a year after Helen's disappearance. Now, the next day, she was reported missing to her band office by her mother as she was indigenous, the family's indigenous, and her mother was told that they had to wait before reporting her disappearance to the police. Now, while they waited, the band office actually sent someone to look for her in South Hazleton and Kitimat to see if she was with siblings or friends, um, and they were actually unable to locate her there either. On October 16th, a missing persons report was officially filed, and following this, her community would lead an eight-day search of all nearby areas only later the police from the area and nearby areas would join the search. Now the search was actually called off by police when an early snow fell but shortly after her parents started the search once again and police followed their lead so they really were not acting on their own. Uh, the police kind of just joined in to, in my opinion, it to not make them look bad because they weren't searching for her at all. Uh, and if the community was out there searching, it would have looked terrible if the police didn't also join in that search. But what should have happened is if the police were actually there to protect and serve and locate these missing girls, these missing women, they would have been leading their own search. They wouldn't have waited for community to start first. However, I digress. So 
There were also spot searches done in larger cities like Vancouver and even Toronto because there were tips that came in that Jean had been cited there. But these searches were unfortunately generally unsuccessful and if something was found, it was not shared publicly. Now in 1971, a chief counselor from their band alleged that Jean had drowned and in 1985, the local RCMP took this as a reason to close the case and tell the family that it had been solved, despite there being absolutely no evidence that she had drowned as her body had not been located, it hadn't been found. So if she had drowned, how would they know that? You know, the family heavily criticized the RCMP's decision as they should have, and they actually applied consistent pressure, which led the police to later reopen the case in 2001. With the RCMP not actively searching for her and her case not included in the EPANA investigation, there have been no tips or leads allowing the family to locate her and the case has gone cold. Brother Rod and Sister Winnie actually went to Prince George to ask the police to include her case in the Highway of Tears list and the EPANA investigation, but they never received a response. Rod says that he remains frustrated with the lack of answers and effort coming from the RCMP and he says that it would be nice for his family to have closure, that it would be nice to see her again if she is alive and if she has passed, it would be nice to formally put her to rest, to have a feast and to put a marker up where she was last seen, just kind of give the family the closure that they all deserve. The disappearance has hit everyone hard and they are asking for anyone with any information to come forward. Now, just like part one, if you have any information, the phone number and the link to where you can disclose said information will be left in the description. Uh, some families, however, do have specific requests that you do not reach out to police, but that you reach out to them directly. So those links can all be found in the description. Now we will be discussing Cecilia Nickel, who was born on January 16th of 1971. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, I would recommend going back and doing that. So then all this would make a little bit more sense. but. She is actually a cousin to Delphine Nickel, who would disappear just a short year after Cecilia. And her case is included in the EPANA investigation, but her cousin Cecilia's is not. Now, there's not much information out there about Cecilia whatsoever, but what is out there is a lot of misinformation, assumptions, or conflicting information, which could potentially play a large role in why this case remains unsolved and not a part of the EPAN investigation, despite her cousin being included. What is known, however, and confirmed is that she moved to Vancouver with her mom on August 1st, 1989, but something occurred and she somehow ended up being houseless just a short time after. And prior to this move, her and her mother lived in Smithers, BC. Now, Cecilia briefly lived with an aunt sometime in the middle of October and the last time she would be seen was at the end of October of 1989 by her mom. There were allegations that Cecilia was alive and well on Vancouver Island, but that claim has never been backed up as she has not been seen or heard from since that last visit with her mom. And this allegation could also play a large part in why nothing has been done about this case. The opposing story was enough for police to just say she'd run away as they had a history of claiming that she did so. Her family believes it was very possible that she was kidnapped or something happened to her along Highway 16 near Smithers, BC. 
but police say that since she was living in the Vancouver area at the time and she technically went missing from Vancouver, so she does not meet the criteria to be added to the EPANA investigation, despite her last sighting being in Smithers, BC, which is near Highway 16. Cecilia's case is unsolved. She is still missing and her or her remains have not been located at this time. So Ms. Dina Bram was born on September 27, 1982 in Quesnel, BC, where she would grow up. Now at 16 years old, Dina was described as a typical teen with a stubborn streak and a mind of her own. Like many, she was just learning to drive. She really started to focus on school and really started to hone in on her dreams of one day becoming an actress and moving to Victoria, which was a much larger city than her hometown, which only had about 10,000 people and bordered on Highway 97. She loved her parents and her brother deeply, and they loved her right back. They were what many would describe as a quite close family. On Friday, September 24th of 1999, Dina was going out to celebrate her 17th birthday with some friends with plans to spend the night at one of their homes and return back to her house the next day. As she was heading out, her dad, Jim, told her happy birthday and told her to have a good time. None of them knew that this would be the last time anyone in the family would actually see her alive. Now, when Saturday rolled around, her parents, Paula and Jim, thought it was kind of weird that she hadn't come home, that they hadn't heard from her to either ask for a ride or for some more money. They, however, tried not to think too much into it because it was her birthday weekend. They thought that she just must have been having so much fun that she forgot to call home. Now when Sunday rolled around, they were extremely worried and this worry was only amplified after one of her best friends called the house to speak to her. Her parents were like, um, what do you mean? Like, she's supposed to be with you. But again, they were like, okay, you know, there's got to be a reasonable explanation for this and they tried not to panic. They knew that she would definitely contact them or come home on Monday as it was her actual birthday and she would want to celebrate that with her family. But when Monday came around, her dad had called the school only to be told that she was not there. After school, he met the school bus that would bring her home and realized that none of her friends had seen her either. So on Dina's 17th birthday, September 24th, she was reported missing. Upon filing the missing persons report, her parents were asked if Dina ran away, and they quickly rejected this claim, as many other families did in throughout the Highway of Tears. And immediately after filing Dina's missing, the family and community members began to search for her. Now, about two months after her initial disappearance, a rabbit hunter who was walking along a trail near Pinnacles Park, BC would unfortunately find Dina's body in a shallow grave. She was left just underneath a pile of branches and other natural shrubbery only about 50 feet away from where the police had stopped their search of that area. Now, fast forward to about a year after her death, the RCMP told family that they had a likely suspect, but absolutely no proof. So, to me, this was like, you don't have a suspect at all. 
because how can you say you have a suspect with no evidence like that's just kind of like you're guessing like you're closing your eyes and throwing darts at a wall it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but now we're going to get into what the police allege happened the night that she went missing and she was with a group of friends so they claim that this group of friends went to a racetrack just southeast of the city and after they were there the group decided they wanted to go to another party but the police alleged that Dina did not want to stay at said party. Hitchhike alone along the Highway of Tears in the pouring rain. A friend who stayed at the party Dina didn't want to stay at last saw her hitchhiking home at around 4 a.m. on Saturday morning on North Fraser Drive, which runs along the Fraser River and is near the local mill. So people who worked the early shift at said mill said that they saw her standing on the side of the road. Now her family is really unsure if they believe this version of events because if she was last spotted there that would mean that she was less than 10 kilometers away from home and she knew that she could call her parents or her brother if she needed a ride home, you know, as she usually did. Now her dad Jim says that he hasn't heard from RCMP investigators in over a decade despite going down to the Quesnel department many times asking for updates regarding his daughter's case. He like many other families was told that someone would get back to him only for them to never do so. He's unsure if anyone is even still looking into her case. So Dina's case has gone cold and it remains unsolved but the family has set up a GoFundMe and the link can be found in the description. Now donations on the GoFundMe are currently paused, but you can check back regularly to see when donations have resumed and contribute to their cause if you can. Now Bonnie Marie Joseph, who also went by Bonnie M, was a mother of five and at the time had short brown hair, deep brown eyes, and was about 5'4", weighing about 120 pounds. At 32 years old, she was last seen by her cousin Joanne in the Vanderhoof, British Columbia area on September 8, 2007, which is only about 100 kilometers west of Prince George. She was last seen hitchhiking from Vanderhoof to Prince George because she had a court date the next day. She was coming to the end of a series of court dates where she was attempting to get custody back of her children, and she had not missed a single one until September 9th. She was reported missing in December of 2007 by Aunt Rose Joseph. Cousin Vanessa Joseph says that before Bonnie went missing and after she was last seen, her wallet and ID were found near a lake and there was an uncashed check within. It was later turned into the RCMP who only later reported discovery a year after it was turned into Bonnie's sister, Sharon. Bonnie was an indigenous woman from the Yokosh band in the Fort St. James area, and she was extremely independent and was known to frequently hitchhike to get around between Fort St. James, Vanderhoof, and Prince George, all in British Columbia. So this wasn't out of the normal for her to do so. But little Ellis's publicly known about her and her life aside from her actively battling addiction and she was known to dabble in survival sex work according to police but not according to any family members from what I can see. So her case remains cold, remains unsolved, 
and there is little to no information out there about her or her disappearance whatsoever, which makes bringing closure to the family extremely hard, even though it's necessary. So Miss Madison Geraldine Scott was born to parents Eldon and Dawn on April 29th, 1991. She also went by Maddie and had an older brother named Ben and a younger sister named Georgia. Now, Madison was described as having a bright, fun-loving, playful, creative, and very social personality, and she was very spontaneous. She was often known to break off plans if she felt like there was something more fun going on elsewhere. She was described as extremely caring and affectionate, according to good friend Chelsea Little. Um, Madison was the type to give the shirt off of her back to those in need. She loved the outdoors and would generally enjoy four-wheeling, motorbiking, camping, and just being outside in general. And she was definitely the type of person who would focus more on her social life than academia or school. She was extremely close with family and friends, but especially cousin Cora Kelly, who she would spend a lot of time with. And it's important to note that Madison would always be in contact with at least one family member about where she was, how she was doing, or what was going on. Now on Friday, May 27th of 2011, Madison and a friend went to Hogsback Lake for a party and they planned to camp there overnight. Her mom says that it was a fairly normal day. Her and Madison had gone out to lunch. Uh, Maddie had left for the campsite but forgot the tent pole so had to come back home and then headed out again. Now the lake they were going to was located about or not was, it is located, about 25 kilometers southeast of Vanderhoof, British Columbia, and this is where she would unfortunately go missing. Now, people of all ages would attend this party, with most of the attendees remaining between 18 and 25 years old, all of whom are from the Vanderhoof area. Madison's friend ended up leaving the party, and by default, Madison did as well. Now it's unclear if the friend made sure that Madison had someone else to camp with, but some reports say that she was last seen by herself between 2.45 and 3 a.m. Now on Saturday, May 28th of 2011, the last of the partygoers were cleaning up their campsites and they saw Madison's truck and tent still standing. They did not check to see if she was still in the tent as they just assumed that she was asleep and proceeded to leave. There was another party of about 150 people that same Saturday, and no one saw or reported seeing Madison. At this point, her parents still hadn't heard from her, but they figured that she was just having a lot of fun, as she loved to do, and had forgot to check in. Now, on Sunday, May 29, 2011, her family had still not heard from her, she was not answering her cell phone, and so they decided to go out to Hogsback Lake to look for her. When they arrived, they found her truck there and her tent, which was now flattened. Her purse was found in the truck, and there was no sign of her phone absolutely anywhere. A search of the area was conducted by RCMP, as well as search and rescue teams from Vanderhoof, British Columbia, Burns Lake, and Fort St. James. Air and land and water searches were conducted with absolutely no result. These searches were conducted from the end of May throughout the month of June, and continued private searches were held for her in 2011 and 2013. Majority of 
The extensive searches were done by friends, family, and community members, and they all turned out unfruitful. The police even began polygraphing partygoers, thinking that it would somehow help with their investigation. And I'm not quite sure what it is with police and polygraphs, honestly, because they don't hold up in court. So, but anyways, her parents are extremely grateful and thankful for the generosity and kindness that was and is still continuously outpouring from friends, family, and community members. Her family recommends that anyone can use the hashtag FindMaddie on all social media platforms. You can also stay updated with the On the Trail to Find Maddie poker ride, where community members and folks would go onto public access trails in the area to look for her or look for any clues leading to her being found. The family is in favor of folks doing their best to keep Maddie's memory alive and to keep her story at the forefront of their minds in an effort to bring closure not only to the case but to her family as well. To this day, Madison's case remains unsolved and she has not been located nor have her remains been found. While Maddie did not disappear directly on the Highway of Tears, she was very near Highway 97, which is a part of the Epana investigation territory. Well, Immaculate Basil, and I just have to say, I absolutely love this name. I love how unique it is, and I love how beautiful it is. So Immaculate Mackie Mary Basil was born on December 8th, 1985 to parents Samuel Basil and Patricia Joseph, and she was one of three sisters and three brothers who grew up in the Vanderhoof, BC area. She was super close with younger sisters Ida and Crystal, and this was thought to have occurred because the three of them actually grew up in the foster care system, which was something that bonded them and made them super, super close. She was also mother to son Jameson, who was five years old at the time of her disappearance, and he was the absolute light of her life. She just adored him, and he adored her back just as much. Immaculate was the type who would offer as much help to as many people as possible. She was extremely caring, according to both Ida and Crystal, who described her as a beautiful and overall caring person. She was pretty introverted and kind. Um, she preferred to spend time with close friends, family members, and her son, and if not with them, she would be online cleaning or decorating. She was not known to drink, do drugs, or even party, so it was kind of a surprise when she told her family that she was going to a party by herself and would be drinking there on Thursday, June 13th. So Immaculate also went by Mackie and was 26 years old at the time that she decided to go to this party. So she headed to the cabin with a few of her friends and was seen at the party in their community, according to Sister Ida. She was seen at the house party on the Tachi Reserve with a man named Victor and cousin named Keith. She actually would leave the party with both of them just after midnight, and the events after this are somewhat unclear, but at this point, Keith, Victor, and Immaculate were in a white truck, and on early June 14th, 2013, the trio got into an accident on Leo Creek Forest Service Road, 
near a place often referred to as the 16 kilometer. The accident happened while they were traveling away from the cabin and away from their hometown, so it's unclear where exactly they were going. But Victor and Keith say that once their car broke down and got stuck in the mud, Immaculate decided to just hitchhike home. She was last seen by a truck driver on June 14, 2013, walking along a forest service road northwest of Fort St. James, British Columbia. She was hitchhiking alone in the same area in which they crashed, the Leo Creek area, which is just north of Tachi Reserve, which is where the party was. There was an extensive four-day search done by the RCMP, and it was led by community members and volunteers. Searched the Tachi River area, and they searched old logging roads within a 20-kilometer radius. Extensive ground searches were done, and unfortunately, she was not located. The last time her family heard from police was actually within the same year she went missing, so 2013. And Sister Ida says it's unclear if the police are still investigating, but she thinks that they definitely should be doing more. Immaculate's case remains unsolved, it remains cold, and the family is left without any closure. So Anita Florence Thorne, who has a partner named Roger Balsam, Unfortunately, very little is known about her and her case, and very little is shared publicly. But what I was able to find out is that Anita was a 49-year-old Prince George resident who hasn't been seen by family members since November 19th, 2014. And she was actually reported missing that same night. So she was spotted at the Super Saver gas station on Victoria Street, where she bought gas, she put it in her car, and she also went to the Tim Hortons drive-thru, which was attached to the gas station. As soon as she was reported missing, community-led searches began and continued for several days after, so her disappearance was taken very seriously. Groups from Vanderhoof, Quesnel, and Mackenzie had also began to search for her, and these searches continued even after police were unable to locate Thorne with police dogs and they even used the RCMP helicopter, which I have not seen mentioned in any other case besides Madison's. So her 2013 Ford Escape was later discovered on November 20th, 2014 at a rest area on Highway 16 named the Willow River Rest Stop, just 30 kilometers outside of Prince George. Her purse was inside, the car was unlocked when it was found, and nothing was missing, had been stolen, or was out of place. It's expected that wherever she went, she, or the perpetrator, had her keys, cigarettes, lighter, and cell phone with them. It's unclear what happened, where she would have went, or who she would have went somewhere with. Now, at the time of her disappearance, Thorne was about 145 pounds with brown eyes and shoulder-length brown hair, and she's white. The family actually has a GoFundMe link that can be found in the description. Please donate if you can, and share it if you can't. Just like the others, this um, GoFundMe is currently on pause, but as soon as it opens back up, you should definitely donate if you can afford to. The Jack family was made up of Mother Doreen Ann and Father Ronald, who also went by Ronnie, 
as well as elder son Russell and youngest son Ryan, and they all hail from the Chelsada Carrier Nation. They were very close and tight-knit amongst the four, but also with both Doreen and Ronald's extended family, so just very close on all sides. This is the only case in Canadian history where an entire family has disappeared. And at the time of their disappearance, both Doreen and Ronald were 26 years old, Russell was nine, and Ryan was only four. So what happened to lead up to their disappearance? Now, on August 2nd, 1989, Doreen's husband, Ronald, met someone at a local pub in Prince George, BC, where they were living at the time, where the man offered him a job at a ranch or a logging camp of some kind, and the man assured Ronald that there would be work both for him and his wife in the area which was near Prince George. This man was described by eyewitnesses as a tall white guy in his mid-30s to early 40s. He stood about six foot to six foot five, a strong, hefty build of about 250 to 275 pounds. He towered over both Ronald, and by default, he would also tower over Doreen as she was smaller than Ronald. So it was clear that he was a lot bigger and a lot stronger than the both of them. This man promised Ronald a job moving logs, and Doreen was offered a position in the kitchen. And Ronald was even told that the job came with daycare for their sons. So this was super exciting because Ronald had been out of work as he had a back injury, and this random offer would meet a lot of their financial needs, and it also had childcare, so they were able to maximize the income between the two of them. That same night that Ronald met the man, uh, his family prepared to head out, and the prospect of this job was super exciting, as I mentioned before, and anywhere Ronald went for work, he would most definitely bring his family with him. Unfortunately, however, the Jack family did not have a car at the time, but the same man who offered them the job offered to drive them directly there that same night. He said he could only drive them that same night, but it was an offer too good to pass up, so Ronald definitely accepted. And it came at just the right time for the family. So at about 11 p.m. that night, Ronald called his brothers to tell them about his new job. A few hours following, he also called his parents, who lived in Burns Lake, B.C., and he told them that he and his family would be gone for about two weeks and they would be back before school started for the boys. Now, this would unfortunately be the last time anyone would hear from Ronald or anyone else in the Jack family. The man was seen waiting outside the family's home as they gathered their belongings and prepared for their trip ahead. Now, just before about 1.30 a.m., all members of the Jack family were seen leaving their home and getting into the man's dark-colored pickup truck. This would unfortunately be the last time that the family would be seen. On August 25th of 1989, the family was reported missing to police. This is the first and only case that I can find in so-called Canadian history where an entire family went missing without a trace. To this day, they have not been found, they haven't been heard from, and they haven't been seen. And no remains have been found of the family members either. Now on January 28th, 1996, the Vanderhoof police received their one and only significant tip regarding the Jack family, 
and it was from a random anonymous man who called and said that the family was buried at the south end of the ranch. Searches led both by community and police have continued since their disappearance, and an extensive search was even done in 2019 at a property just south of Vanderhoof City borders. Unfortunately, no helpful leads or tips have come forth, and there's been no physical evidence that can be found to help bring closure to the family regarding what happened to the Jack family. This was a case that did not receive much media attention or support at all, despite it was literally an entire family of four going missing. Age progressed pictures of the family have been released not by police, but by community advocacy groups in both Canada and the US. Police allegedly were working on their own age progressing pictures, but they weren't happy with the final results and so they just stopped working on them. Which is ridiculous. But links can be found in the description to these images because the family finds that they have been super helpful since they've been released and it actually led to an influx of new tips which allowed them to remain hopeful that they will find or at least find out what happened to them one day. Relatives of the Jack family say that the pictures have given the search new energy as the family has been missing for over 30 years at this point and they say that they do not care about the whole justice side of things. They are just focused on bringing the family home. They want whoever knows something or somehow participated in their disappearance to know that they can and should 100% come forward at this time. The Jack family case is unsolved and it remains excluded from the EPANA investigation despite the family going missing on or near the Highway of Tears as they were traveling on the Highway of Tears wherever the mystery barman had taken them. So now we are going to take the time to discuss all of the RCMP problems with this case and there is literally so many problems with every single case that was discussed in both part one and part two. Now the most prominent criticism that I can find of the RCMP investigation or lack thereof is that the case which received the most attention both by media and both by police is Nicole Hoare's case which if you don't remember she, she was the first white woman to go missing along the Highway of Tears in 2002. Many felt that her disappearance was the driving and motivating force behind the RCMP even investigating into any of the cases. It is also believed that her case received a lot more attention simply because she's white and the police had shown a real history of caring more for white people overall. Now this was only backed up by comments that police had made about Nicole's lifestyle and how things like this don't happen to girls like her so it's like what are you insinuating by saying that about the other girls and women who had gone missing so the people don't really trust police overall and with good reason for that the highway of tears is a perfect example um, it has been going on for a very long time and there is really no urgency to solve the cases so this whole segment, both part one, part two, is just full of reasons why people don't trust the police. The fact that most of the cases are unsolved, they have no leads, and they're not actively investigating, or they're not actively in contact with the family. Like, why would you trust them? 
There is also extensive history of discrimination, abuse, and racism at the hands of the police themselves. So when families went to report their loved ones missing, police often wrote off their concerns and a lot of them didn't even initially file a missing persons report or investigate at all because they had assumed that the women were intoxicated, they were sex workers, or they had agreed to sleep with someone prior to their actual disappearance. So the police were blaming them for their own disappearance and murders. So there was no driving or motivating force for them to really look into what happened, which is extremely racist and problematic. It played into a very harmful stereotype of indigenous women that too many police officers often have. They were much more focused on victim blaming and making things easier for themselves rather than figuring out what happened and bringing closure to the families. In my opinion, there's also a very high probability that some of the police officers who work and live in the area deemed the Highway of Tears are responsible for some of the deaths, sexual assaults, and disappearances of these women and girls, which could also explain the lack of urgency to locate those responsible. It made me think specifically of Isla Sarik Auger's case, where she was last seen and stopped by a police officer the night that she disappeared, but he was cleared of any obligation or responsibility because he took a lie detector test and passed. So we all know that these tests are not reliable, they cannot be used in court, so the fact that it was used to clear him when he was technically the last person to see her alive is beyond absurd to me. In far too many cases, the police would not initiate a search until the family or the community did, or if they did carry out searches of their own, they wouldn't continue for very long and the search area just wasn't wide enough. So like in Dina's case, where her body was just 50 kilometers outside of the predetermined area that they were searching for her. They just were not doing enough. They're the ones with all the resources, so they are meant to be leading said efforts to bring home these missing individuals and they continue to only act and care if there's consistent public pressure, if that foot is always on their necks. But even if there is that public pressure, there's no guarantee that they'll do anything. So Sergeant Wayne Clary, who works for the RCMP and is a part of the EPANA investigations, actually told in an interview, he stated that he has been quote unquote honest with victims' families and told them that it's likely that their cases will never be solved. He went on in the same interview to say that this is the reality of the situation and that is what he tells families, that they can't keep going forever when there's no work. This to me is highly insulting. They have only claimed to have solved four cases out of so many, and there's many that I didn't even discuss yet they're acting as if there's a lack of work. There's too much work for them to not be doing anything. Not that there's not enough, but he claims that since cases have been ongoing for so long, it's possible that the witnesses or those who have, can now, or those who could have helped have now passed or forgotten what has happened. And he said this in the interview as if it was someone else's fault. Like the only reason these cases aren't weren't investigated earlier is because the RCMP didn't want to. Like, this is of no fault of anyone else's. Wayne Clary also claimed in this same interview that the people from the communities along the Highway of Tears are the only ones who can solve these crimes at this point. In my notes, I just have question marks beside this because I 
I don't know what to say about this. This to me is ridiculous. It's frustrating. It's extremely infuriating because the millions of dollars that are consistently poured into this project were a waste. And once again, the onus is back on the people who are not being paid to do this work. Granted, those who lost their loved ones are never going to stop trying to find out what happened to them, but the responsibility shouldn't remain solely on them, especially when we supposedly have the police who are there for this exact purpose. I cannot understand why in any world it would be okay for the police to just give up on this case, especially since they had to be essentially bullied into investigating in the first place. This, once again, for me, just hits home the point that the police should not have the responsibility of finding missing people in general. The onus almost always falls back on the public to either solve the case completely or to greatly assist the police, meaning that they could have done it without the police. The resources that they get can be put to much better use when placed within community resources and community programs and with community groups who actually get results. And to me, a perfect example of this would be when a group of collective community uh, organizations like Bear Clan, Mama Bear Clan, Community 204, Anisha Native, MKO, and others who were made, and also people who were not a part of those groups and were just concerned community members actually found missing Indigenous woman Jessie McKay without any police assistance on September 24th, 2021. Police reported she was found on September 25th saturday in the morning but she was actually found late saturday night and they were searching and carrying out one of many searches that had been organized by the groups mentioned before as well as jesse's family a lot of family members and first nations leaders from cross lake made the 530 kilometer journey to search for jesse at this point she had been missing for about three weeks and nobody had seen her or heard from her since September 5th. She was reported missing on September 13th and thanks to quick community action she was able to be located safely. Who knows what would have happened to her if the community did not step up in the way that they did. In my opinion, a large part of the local RCMP and police division's responsibilities for investigating and finding out what happened Two folks should have a large part of their budgets taken, if not all of their budgets taken, and put towards implementing the Highway of Tears Symposium recommendations that were put forth. So now we are going to get into the Highway of Tears Symposium recommendations report, which was released by a collaboration of tribal councils, First Nations folks, and friendship centers all located along the Highway of Tears. So a strong unified voice also came from victims' families as well, and this came to fruition after the murder of 14-year-old Isla Sarek Auger. Rena Zatariski says that her death sent shockwaves amongst communities who live and work on or near the Highway of Tears, especially Indigenous folks. Rena also says that her murder brought issues of race, poverty, women's rights, as well as the isolation of youth and the overall justice system to the forefront. This symposium was held on March 30th and 31st of 2006, and it had over 500 people in attendance who had been in some way negatively affected either directly or indirectly by the Highway of Tears. So the report itself made 33 recommendations to make routes 
safer and they focused on four specific areas victim prevention emergency planning and team response victim family counseling support and community development and support some of these recommendations in practice were idealized to look like shuttle buses providing transportation and recommendation eight which wanted emergency phones set up in remote locations and they wanted cell service to be greatly improved. This was the group to bring forth the recommendation for cell phone service in the area as they stated that there were too many areas of the highway where phone towers were out of transmission range. And this demand was seen to be inconceivable at the time. For what reason, I'm not really sure. Also wanted some sort of formal collaboration between all levels of government, industry, and organizations to come together and safely address concerns of the highway overall. Who better to collaborate with and come up with safety solutions better than those who work, live along, and are responsible for the highway and also responsible for what happens to the women who went missing across it and who still go missing across it to this day. In 2017, BC Transit started three new bus routes across Highway 16. In its first year of service, approximately 5,000 people used these new routes, which took just shy of a decade to be implemented. Just as the community got this win with transit expansion, Greyhound Canada announced in 2018 that they would no longer service Canada as a whole, but also the few routes which did go along the Highway of Tears. Now, for those unaware, Greyhound Canada was a cross-country bus service, and it was often the most affordable way of getting around for those who lived in remote areas or for those who wanted to travel but were working with limited means. Now, it's a, it was a very important way to get around and a service that is thought to have protected many hitchhikers from suffering the same fate as those who we have mentioned in part one and part two. It seems like just as one problem is solved, another pops up. It took 11 years for the expansion of local bus services, only for the destruction of the national bus service. Few of the recommendations in this report have been implemented, which is extremely frustrating, as extreme time, care, and consideration had gone into putting together these recommendations that could either cut back on the amount of disappearances or had the power to potentially stop them altogether. Many are quite simple and could have easily been done, especially considering how quickly the government was able to put money towards investigations that they did not care about. This is especially important to note because the RCMP feel as if the onus is on the community to figure out what happened to these women, and yet they are not willing to do a single thing that these communities have recommended to prevent more women and girls from going missing, knowing damn well that they are not going to look into these disappearances. So it's just like a catch-22. So for Wayne to say, yeah, you know what, onus is kind of on communities and community to be like, okay, well, if onus is on us, then this, 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 it needs to get done. And then everyone just looks at them. Like, yeah, we're not going to do that, but thanks. I will leave a link to the Highway of Tears Symposium Recommendations Report in the description if you are interested. In 2015, October 2015 specifically, the BC Ministry of Transportation government officials who were under liberal leadership at the time were triple deleting emails, which was clear that they were making sure that these emails were not left anywhere in the system 
of anything related to the Highway of Tears. This is referred to as an email scandal, and there were more than a dozen emails about important meetings with 80 First Nation leaders along the Highway of Tears. Tim Duncan, who was an executive assistant of this department, claims that he was told to delete the emails under the Freedom of Information Act in November of 2014. And Mavis Erickson, Sakani Carrier Tribal Counselor, claims that this is proof of a cover-up regarding the Highway of Tears. She says that it shows the fear which resides within the government for their actions, misactions, and inactions. They don't want these things to come to light. And so they try to hide them by deleting things. But what's done in the dark always comes to the light. So if any of these officials had anything to do with any disappearances or larger cover-ups, it'll come out. So we have now come to the conclusion of our Highway of Tears case. And this is usually the part where I'll discuss my thoughts. And I don't have very many on this one to mention now. I, I'm i appalled that the police are trying to put the onus back on the families who should be focused on grieving. I'm appalled at the amount of money that has been poured into this investigation that could have been poured into community who might have been able to get answers faster. Um, I'm appalled at the immense feeling I get that there's a cover-up going on and that is why these cases are not being solved. I'm appalled that they tried to make it seem as if it wasn't a serial killer only to solve certain cases that were attached to a serial killer. Um, just the overall lack of effort, the lack of care and concern for these women, for these girls, for their families, for their children is appalling. I I really I really don't have much to add. I just think that the police don't care enough to try and solve anything. And so I think unfortunately that a lot of these cases will remain cold. Uh, they will remain unsolved and a lot of the families will never have answers. This case was difficult to research. Uh, it was troubling the lack of information that was out there about a lot of these women and I don't think anything to me was more shocking than the comments made by that police officer where he puts the onus back on the families to figure out what happened. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Girl You Haven't Heard, where we discussed the Highway of Tears, the Pana investigation, the lack of effort. We discussed the Highway of Tears Symposium Recommendations Report. And we discussed the problems with the RCMP. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week.